0: I made the mistake of coming home one night and complaining to my son. I was telling this story this morning. Never, when you've got a fifth grader at home, don't complain. He looks at me and goes, Dad, what do you do at work all day that's so hard? Make decisions? I go, Well, Teddy, it's not that easy. He goes, he goes Dad, get the facts, make a decision, check next. I go, because every, every day I've got to go into school and learn something completely new I didn't know existed the day before. If I don't get it perfect, my life's misery because everything's based on the day before. I, after five minutes, it said, Ted, you're right. Fifth grade is harder than being governed.
1: States being laboratories of democracy, what is Ohio giving us?
2: Football. <laughs>
3: so who are these guys? And why are they laughing while talking about politics? Well, it's John Hickenlooper, former governor of Colorado, a Democrat, and John Kasich, former governor of Ohio, a Republican. And yes, they do appear on a stage together fairly frequently as they do a kind of buddy tour of the United States. And they talk about how to reach across the aisle and get things done for the voters and citizens of the United States. This is 20 by 70, the podcast for people expect more out of Philadelphia and out of democracy generally. And I'm Chris Satullo, sitting in the studio at Kelly Writer's house on the University of Pennsylvania campus with the CEO of the Committee of 70, David Thorberg. And he's the guy who brought the two of them together. For this annual luncheon of the Committee of Seventy, why'd you do it, David? Usually, you have a distinguished journalist for the lunch. John Meacham last year, John Dickerson two years ago.
4: Why two governors? Well, let me give you a little backstory uh, on how we uh, got these two folks. You mentioned John Meacham; uh, he was our speaker last year, and I think he to to say he wowed the audience, floored the audience was an understatement. I mean, he was superb. Setting. Uh, current events in the context of history, as a good historian uh, can do. So we walked out of there thinking, like, well, we're not going to be able to outmeach them, meet them. And by the way, uh, with all due respect to our friends uh, and colleagues in the uh, journalism business, it's nice every once in a while to hear from people who are in the business, in the game, as it were. So here was our thought process. We said, let's see if we can find, at the time, sitting governors of major states. Check. Uh, How about two guys that share the same first name? John. Check. How about two who have roots in Pennsylvania? Check. Uh, John Hickenlooper was raised in in Narberth and lived here until he went to college. Uh, And uh, John Kasich, as he reminds people often, uh, was born and raised in McKees Rock, the son of a a post uh, office worker and a a homemaker. So check. Check. Uh, How about if we can find folks who are considered pragmatic, pro-growth politicians? Check. Extra, extra credit, as you mentioned, if they uh, have a habit of working together across the aisle. They've proposed some interesting things around health care in recent months. Extra, extra credit if they uh, are independently mentioned as presidential candidates. And extra, extra, extra credit if... Somewhat improbably, they're sometimes mentioned as kind of a fusion ticket, a uh, centrist Republican and a centrist Democrat who would somehow together run for president and vice president. So that was the story. That's what brought John Hickenlooper and John Kasich to Philadelphia.
3: OK, David. So uh, doing an interview with one politician in front of about 500 people, as there were at the Bellevue Ballroom that day, is a tough challenge. Having two loquacious and funny and uh, somewhat irrepressible politicians interview one time is a tough task. So that's why... Uh, the Committee of Seventy asked Marty Moscawane, the host of Radio Times, uh, to conduct this interview because it took a really experienced interview to get this one done. So that day at the Bellevue on the stage there in the ballroom, Marty sat down with John Kasich and John Hickenlooper for a wide-ranging conversation, so wide-ranging that it went from health care reform to the movie Deep Throat. Let's take a listen.
1: It's, it's a great pleasure to be here to talking with talking with two governors who have early ties to Pennsylvania, and I appreciate what David was saying about both of you. So a chance for an hour at least uh, to be uh, protected from the outside world. So here we
2: go. You think they could listen that long?
1: Yeah, I think so. I think so. I was watching the two of you having lunch together. Is bromance, would that describe your relationship, Governor Hickenlooper?
0: Well, certainly uh, it's been a great uh, privilege, but also a real pleasure to get to know uh, Governor Kasich just because he, you know, when I was still washing pint glasses in 1992, he was chairing, uh, the budget committee, the house budget committee and really one of the first people to speak up on the challenges around our national debt. Can we keep spending money willy nilly? Uh, was really a voice of reason. So when we first started working together on health care, I felt like in some way I'd been blessed
1: to find your counterpart in a lot of ways. Do you think it's easier though for governors to get along in that you live in slightly separate worlds, you don't have to run against each other as governors, you have your own legislatures you have to deal with, but does that make it easier to reach across the aisle?
2: No. No? Okay. No. It's easy to, I mean, that's like you have to have some made up place for people to be able to get along. I think we should get along. I mean, so I was in Congress for a long time. I was in the legislature. I, was at, I worked on Wall Street. Uh, I've been on television. Uh, just get along with people. I don't think, I don't think that governors, uh, they tend to be partisan and avoid risks. That's really that's a sin to say today, but we saw it. John and I saw it when we were trying to stop the health care uh, policies from being ripped away from you know, 20 million Americans. I like John because John's fun. Okay, I don't have a lot of friends in politics. People I spend time with, uh, I just don't. I don't spend time with politicians. Brian Sandoval, uh, he's the governor of Nevada. I, I love Brian. He was at my house last week with his wife, and we were talking, and we were talking about you, John, and we were saying, how come we don't have any friends in politics? <laughs> I can't exactly remember what he said, but maybe because we don't trust them. I don't know. But, but John is so much fun. So. Not only do we get along, but here's the thing. This is what I love about them. If I said, John, what do you think? We can put this rocket in our backyard, uh, and we could, we know where Mars is now, because they just landed there, although nobody wants to pay attention to that remarkable feat. You know, we know where Mars is. You got any gas out there? Let's let's try to go. And he'd say, okay, and then our staffs would stop both of us, okay? (laughs) But, But our intention would be to have fun and take risks, and... We just kind of do what comes naturally. I mean, it's amazing to us that anybody is amazed that we're buddies. Why wouldn't we be? You know, we're in the same business, more or less, but we're the same kind of people. We have a lot of fun.
1: But you are an anomaly. I mean, it seems that there are not a lot of Republicans and Democrats who who regard each other with the kind of affection that you have for each other. Would you agree with that?
0: Yeah, to a certain extent, although you never, the, the media loves to take issue and find out those opportunities where, you know, people are attacking each other. And, and that, that in, instinct to define yourself politically by who your enemies are, it, it comes about because it's rewarded. The, the media looks at that and says, ah, that's news. And, and so you can become known by attacking people. When I, when I first ran for mayor in 2003, I'd never ran for student council. I had like, really thick glasses, and I was a skinny kid with a funny <laughs> last name. And, You know, I would never have run for office, and when I ran in 2003, I said I was going to be a a positive campaign. I wouldn't say anything negative about any of my opponents. I had four lifetime public servants, very talented people, and people were stunned. You'll never get anywhere, because how else will you get in the newspapers if you're not attacking, finding out the scandal on somebody else? Well, surprise, surprise, there's a real appetite out there for somebody who is just speaking directly and telling the facts and painting a vision of the future without trying to tear down everybody.
1: Governor Kasich, when you think about the middle ground or people that are moderate.
2: It's pretty boring.
1: Well, is it
2: though? <laughs> I think it is. But
1: isn't that what you're, what you're looking for? No, and, and I'm who not, you're speaking for? No, I'm not
2: looking for that. I'm a, I mean, a guy come up to me today. He goes, where do moderate Republicans go? And I said, well, I'm, I don't know because I'm a conservative Republican. Right. And somehow my party has left me because I don't even know what we're practicing now. It's malpractice. Um, but <laughs> here's the problem you have. Here's the problem you have, and you being in the media. Uh, the middle's boring. I mean, we get interests on the edge, okay? And when you do your shows, you're not looking for the middle, you're looking for something interesting. And so when you say, I'm in the middle, I've never been in the middle of anything except one fight after another and one challenge <laughs> after another. And, uh, you know, I think John and I are common sense. And we gotta stop defining ourselves as Republicans, as Democrats, as liberals, as conservatives. How about like, how do you think? Uh, I mean, it's sort of what David and I were talking about. You know, How do you think about things? What defines your character? How do you make decisions? And John and I are just common sense guys. You know, he calls me up. He says, we got these tax zones. You could do economic development. I, I said, okay, it makes, I checked that out. We're looking at healthcare. We're like, why would we want to strip healthcare away from people with a pre-existing condition, is that liberal? Is that conservative? To me that's just like common sense and decent. So I think we need to change the term because when you are the middle, people don't, are not interested. Look, I debated with 15 other guys. The middle didn't make it. It was who could say the most extreme, wacky thing to get on the morning news. And you're in the news media. Why aren't you doing a better job?
1: <laughs>
2: <laughs>
1: My fault. Sorry, America. But you have come together on things like, on, on health care in yeah. particular. You had a, an op-ed and, and had lots of prescriptions. We did, lots. We for, did,
2: we did many, many I things. I think of that
1: as middle. I think of uh, wanting good schools for children, clean air. I mean, those are, maybe they're boring, but they are, I think, what most people want.
0: Well, I think that what we've, and I think of myself rather than as a, uh, liberal, conservative. I think of myself as a progressive in the old sense of the word, where progress means progress, It means getting something done. And I think the media, what we have to do is do a. We elected officials and our teams have to do a better job of communicating exactly what it is we're trying to get done. And you know, Colorado eight years ago we started a program to provide long-acting reversible contraception to low-income women, 15 to 25, all over the state. We told the teenagers, you're too young to have sex. We pushed that hard. But if they wanted to, if they were gonna make a mistake, we didn't want them to compound it with a second mistake. But we've reduced teenage pregnancy and teenage abortion by over 60% in the last eight years. No one ever talks about that. And that's progress, right? That's is that extreme or liberal? No. And is it newsworthy? Yeah, I think it is newsworthy, right? There, are, you know, thousands of young women that are going to have a better chance in life because they're going to have a family when they're when they're ready for it.
1: Would that work in Ohio?
2: Well, I mean, we we push. I mean, I, I don't even know exactly what that's all about. But we, you know, I expanded Medicaid, for example. Why did I do that? Because it made sense to me that I'd like to cover. I, I don't want people who are mentally ill sleeping under a bridge, uh, or being in a jail. So. What we're saying is, we look at a problem, whether it's infant mortality, whether it's the problem of, of violence, whether it's the problem of race, you look it square in the eye and you say, what do we do about it? And there really, if, there really is not much difference, really, between politicians and business people. Mm-hmm. There really just isn't. They tend to think there's a lot of, there's no, not much difference at all. I've been in both worlds. Uh, John's been in both worlds. When a business puts their head in the sand and ignores a problem, they die. When politicians put their heads in the sand and they ignore a problem, they die, elect, you know, politically or electorally. So I think what John and I do, we have the same sort of instinct. Is it middle to say we don't want 20 million people to be stripped of health insurance? To me, that's not middle. That's just humane and common sense, not middle. But if you want to call us middle, go ahead. I mean, I'm, <laughs> All
1: right, we're I'll here in Philadelphia. It. I'll think of another word. Yeah. <laughs> As a, as we, it's, a,
2: it's i'm going to tell you it's really a challenge because human beings are fascinated by the action the extremes they're they're fast we're all caught in it you never I know you have never been in a traffic jam where you sit there for an hour and when you drive by there's just a guy with a little fender bender on the side of the road because we all have to look there's something in us and I think the key to people like John and me when we try to practice common sense is to be able to tell that story in a way that captures people's imagination, that gets them exciting, uh, get excited about what we're doing. And if you can't do that, then you, the people will never hear you or see you. You agree with that, John? Yeah, totally.
1: I, I wanna to ask you about what Colorado did after the massacre in Aurora, uh, where um, I don't know the exact number, but it's clearly numbers of people were killed.
0: Top 12. 12. 12. 70 people shot. You were people.
1: able to pass legislation to deal with background checks with high capacity magazines. I think about what happened at Sandy Hook or Parkland or all the religious um, institutions where there were massacres and our federal government is not able to do something. Is there a lesson from Colorado?
0: Well, I think the background checks, and we had a huge battle on our hands. <clears throat> I made the mistake of coming home one night and complaining to my son, I was telling this story this morning, uh, and uh, never, when you've got a fifth grader at home, don't complain. Uh, he looks at me and goes, Dad, what do you do at work all day that's so hard? Make decisions? Hmm. I go, well, Teddy, it's not that easy. <laughs> he, goes, he goes, Dad, get the facts, make a decision, check next. I go, <laughs> Because every every day I've got to go into school and learn something completely new I didn't know existed the day before. If I don't get it perfect, my life's misery because everything's based on the day before. I, after five minutes, it said, "Teddy, you're right. Fifth grade is harder than being governor." <laughs> but, but I went in the next day. We had the national statistics, but we hadn't gotten. Are local statistics. And I think if you went around state to state, you'd get very similar numbers. We We were doing background checks on roughly half the purchases. And in 2012, the year before, once I went back in, it took us three weeks to get the data. But there were 38 people convicted of homicide who tried to buy a gun, and we stopped them. 133 people, and this is a state of five and a half million people. 133 people convicted of sexual assault, 620 burglars, 420 people had judicial restraining orders not to see their ex-wife or their, their boss, and they tried to buy a gun and we stopped them. And you know, all my Republican friends said, well, crooks aren't stupid. They're not gonna get a background check. Why are the rest of us having to spend 10 bucks and wait around? It turns out that 240 people, when they came to pick up their gun, we arrested them for an outstanding warrant for a violent crime. So, the-
1: I mean, the question is, so that worked in Colorado. Governor Kasich, can that work for the rest of America? where you take a tragedy, a yeah. horror.
2: Well, you'd like to think so, but it's, it's very complicated. And I'd give John a lot of credit for what he was able to pass. Um let, let, me, let me just divert here for a second. And this is all about like, political leadership, like the president and the tone and all that. Presidents matter. CEOs matter. We've got a lot of Comcast people here. They matter. But let me ask you, let me ask ask you a question. Let me ask you a question. When you you wake up in the morning, does the President of the United States really have any effect on you? On day-to-day life? What I think has an effect on you on day-to-day life is who you work with, what's going on in your family, what's happening in the neighborhood, most specifically with your neighbors. Those are the things that affect you. Presidents can help determine the mood of the country. We know that we're not in a good mood now. But let's think about where change comes from. Civil rights movement didn't come from the Kennedys. The civil rights movement came out of the black churches and a number of of, of, uh, people who uh, lived up north who said, we're going south uh, with the Freedom Riders because this is intolerable. And it built 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 and finally the politicians had no no, nothing they could do to avoid it. I swear that if it wasn't for what was happening on the college campuses in America, we would still be in Vietnam. Hmm. I'm not convinced that the leaders would have ever made a decision. And now we're 17 years in Afghanistan and people are still dying and they could be your family or anybody dying makes us sad. Woman suffrage, where'd that come from? You think that came from the politicians? Women's suffrage happened because women said, I've, we've had enough. Environmental awareness, where do you think that came from? Now where you got people denying there's even climate change. So what I want to tell you, and I'll tell you about guns, the problem with guns is that people are not organizing enough to tell the politicians to pass some darn common sense gun laws. And in my state, I would like to pass a red flag law. Do you have that? No,
0: we, we so came can't very pass close. It. We came very okay, close. Okay, well,
2: very close. Here's what a red flag law is. Tell, explain to me why you wouldn't do it. If you know somebody at your workplace or somebody in your family who is an unstable and poses a threat to themselves or to others, you go to a court and you make your presentation to the court and if the court finds justification, you take the guns away from them until they become stabilized. I can't pass that in my state. He didn't pass it in his state. Why? Because you aren't upset enough. You see, change in our country comes from the bottom up, not the top down. We need to have good leaders. Leaders can set the tone. They can give us the right direction. But you matter more. So we all sit around, wring your hands. Oh, Trump, that he did this or whatever. What are we going to do? What are you doing? I mean, seriously, what are you doing to bring about the That's what this program's all about. I was watching Brandywine. Do you see their investment? see what they're doing? You, I will listen to this thing. You know what this is about? This is about doing good while doing well, and it's not coming from Pittsburgh. You, by the way, that's a city in Pennsylvania, it's on the other <laughs> side, okay? Uh, it comes from you. And if John had 25,000 people on the lawn in Colorado, or I had 25,000 people out of 11.5 million in my state saying pass the red flag law, it would be passed. So I want to say to you, let's think about what we do, where we live, where we work, because we're all leaders to somebody. And the change in our country, the spirit of our country comes from us. Ain't that great? Us.
1: Let me pick up on that and go back to you, having to do with marijuana in Colorado, <laughs> having just been there. Seeing the, the stores essentially uh, selling marijuana there. Something that you did not support in the beginning, but I believe are a supporter now. I don't know if it's the $250 million a year that you get from selling marijuana, but nonetheless, do you think changing your mind also helps to move things along, to find some common ground?
0: Well, I wondered, <clears throat> I wondered how long it would take to get to marijuana. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, moderate issue. <laughs> it so,
1: actually is, but nonetheless, okay. yes.
0: Almost <laughs> every elected official I know opposed the original initiative, because there was so much uncertainty. I mean, the first, pa- first place, no other country or state had ever actually legalized it. Even Amsterdam just decriminalized it. So this notion that we were going to go out and create from scratch a whole regulatory framework and be in conflict with federal law, not be able to have banking, it was a pretty daunting prospect. And the voters of Colorado are not easily daunted. Uh, mm-hmm. And despite our opposition, again, almost every uh, uh, elected official, with a couple rare exceptions, uh, the new governor of Colorado, Jared Polis, and you'll hear more on, he is also an entrepreneur and was willing to go out on a limb there and say he was going to support this. We were worried that there'd be a spike in teenage consumption and every scientific report I've seen says that this high THC marijuana, if your brain's still growing rapidly, you're taking a tremendous risk that, that even just weekly consumption of high THC marijuana, will, you'll lose slivers of your long-term memory, right? Long-term memory is, is how we go through life, right? It's, how, it, what, it's what matters most. So we were very concerned that these consequences, more people driving while high. These were fears we had. But once the voters pass something, and I'm a big believer that states are indeed the laboratories of democracy, my job was to be what the Quakers, here I am in Philadelphia, what the Quakers call a fair witness. Do everything I can to try to make it succeed, but to be objective, and if it doesn't succeed, you know, point that out and pull the plug. And To be quite blunt, we have not seen the terrible ramifications that were predicted. Not to say that we don't still have problems. We still have a a decent sized black market. Uh, We think we have some small increase in driving while high. But we didn't see a spike in teenage consumption. And we do a poll every two years of over 20,000 kids. So that's pretty good data. Uh, And, you know, the one place we do see uh, an increase in consumption is among uh, the, the seniors. Now, you can make of that what you want, whether it's, you know, arthritis old and, habits. or b- baby boomers coming home to roost. Um, but I think that in, in every other point of view, you have to look at the old system, which was a train wreck, right? We were sending hundreds of thousands. We we're sending millions of kids to prison, most of them Latino and African Americans, making the rest of their lives significantly more difficult for, you know, uh, buying and selling, for having a hustle in something that was illegal. And if indeed we can have a legal system uh, surrounding that, uh, so much the better. And I think one thing worth pointing out, so we get $250 million in tax revenue, that is a drop in the bucket Hmm. in terms of we're a $31 billion a year state budget. So it's not going to get us early childhood education or anything significant. We do use that tax money to deal with many of the hard to fund, consequences of drug use, right? So uh, the, the people that are uh, perennial uh, homeless, right? They're chronically homeless. Hard to find where you can get the resources, to get them into housing and wrap around services. They get counseling, they get medications for their mental health, but most importantly, we try to get them into jobs and pair them with employers. That's expensive, it works, you save lives, but that the, the marijuana tax money is helping us do a lot more of that than we ever did.
1: States being laboratories of democracy, what is Ohio giving us?
2: Football. <laughs> uh, what do you what do you what do you, what do you mean, what do you mean, what am I giving you? What uh, uh, I think well, I'll, I'll tell you, th- I'll tell I'll you, what, tell
0: you what, what Ohio in terms of in terms of innovations of ideas are giving us Governor like that. Yeah.
2: No I, I mean, mean, uh, what,
1: no, I didn't mean that as an insulting question. I'm no, just no, no, I know
2: you didn't. You're I know that. Um, what I mean, what am I giving you? I don't know. I'm gonna tell you what. What we've done in the state, because I think it's a roadmap that people should hear, um, we're up nearly six, we're the seventh largest state. We are up almost 600,000 private sector jobs in the last eight years. We've cut taxes for people to top, but we also have cut taxes for people who are the lower income folks so that they have a chance to get up. We have a low rate of, uh, of the uninsured in our state. We've had a 30 percent increase in infrastructure without a tax increase. We've privatized economic development. We h- created a Commission on Community and Police, which has been a had an enormous effect in terms of, of the community and how they look at things. We've helped uh, the minority community uh, significantly. Um, if you are developmentally disabled, we help you, we try to to get you involved and mainstream you. Uh, you can get insurance if you're your family, you have an autistic son or daughter. What what The reason I'm, I'm saying all this is in a sea in the Midwest where Republicans lost everything, the governor of Illinois, the governor of Wisconsin, the governor candidate in Michigan, the, the governor candidate here in Pennsylvania, although you're really not Midwest, but in a way you, you, we could argue that. In my state, Republicans won every single thing. Mm-hmm. And why is that? Because it was a policy of inclusion. It was not a policy that you know one side gets this and the other side gets that, or somebody gets something and somebody else doesn't. There's a sense in the state that if you've got a problem, we don't, may not fix it, but we're gonna to try to address it. And so that approach, which is, I'm a conservative, but it's in some ways non-ideological, represents common sense or people are hurting, we try to figure out how to help them. Um, we, we've had great success and I think it's a road map for every state and, uh, so I think we can give you not just one thing, mm-hmm. but a whole panoply of things that will make the folks inside of your state feel better. But again, I'm back to, um, i want gonna tell you one little story. We, I had a dozen young ladies come to see me. Uh, their parents are all in and out of prison. They're all drug addicts. They came in, young girls, 12, 13, 14. And, um, I said, well, I'll take you and put you in foster care. Well, we can't do that because we're raising our brothers and sisters. This is rural poverty. Bobby Kennedy toured the country 50 years ago trying to deal with rural poverty. Nothing has changed in 50 years. What we have decided is the way to solve it is right in the community. We'll help you. We'll give you a few bucks. But at the end of the day, you need to pull together. You need to figure out what you can do to save these girls' lives and we're beginning to see significant progress on that where one more time we're back to community when the community decides to do something the community gets together and can create a strength that can't that can't be duplicated anywhere else other than what they're doing in that community and that is something i really know that we as americans really need to think about and what is our role in that
1: let me ask you some presidential type questions one is for both of you are you running for president governor hickenlooper <laughs> and i have to say governor Casey got a great line about you which is that no one goes to iowa by mistake and you were seen in iowa I see
2: that. <laughs> you have to recognize so you i have I to did say i spent a week a year there one week yeah, exactly. um, I was just kidding i was just kidding iowa Go ahead. <laughs> Go the, ahead,
1: Governor Hickenlooper. Well,
2: there are a lot of Hickenloopers. The little-known fact that Burke, a- Burke
0: Hickenlooper, <laughs> Burke Hickenlooper was a U.S. Senator from 1956 to 1970. So there, uh, I have a sort of family responsibility to go. <laughs> uh, he, he was of course. Yeah, right. He was a Republican, although he would today certainly be a Democrat. I think, with all due respect to the grand old party, um, we're looking at it very seriously, and I think Colorado is what they call flyover state. It's smaller. It's in the west. But I think a lot of what we've done is at least worth mentioning. And it's hard to get anybody to pay attention if you don't go out there and, and, and talk about it in a loud voice. So, that my wife and myself, we're, we're working on it.
1: Uh, several headlines about you called you the un Trump.
0: <laughs> yeah, well, Does that feel right? Well, you know, when I was in the private sector, I was a geologist on it, and the wave of layoffs in the re- recession of the 80s, I was out of work for a couple of years and ended up opening this brew pub. And so, there I ended up opening 16 different brew pubs, each one a separate subchapter S corporation. I did four old historic warehouse renovations into lofts and commercial stuff. Had over 250 investors. Had over a million customers a year. And I've never sued anyone. I've never been sued. So that's a little different than President Trump.
2: <laughs> that's good. That's good.
1: And Governor Casey. Well, when your
2: grandfather was a United States senator, my grandfather was working in a coal mine in, in Pittsburgh. <laughs> yeah. So I didn't get that. No, I'm just My kidding. great uncle, my great oh, uncle. Oh, your great uncle, okay. Uh,
0: but you, anyway. you have
2: run
1: twice before, right? Well, I mean, I didn't
2: really. I mean, the first thing was just a kind of a, a run around the track once. Right. I mean, I didn't, I didn't, I, no, I mean, I, look, You did run one for thing, president. one thing, yeah, one, but one thing that happens is, and this is what John will have to face, and this is the challenge. Uh, the reason why my friends talked me into this in 2000 was because they knew, I didn't know this, but they knew I couldn't win, but they wanted me to see what it was like. And it was really hard, and it was not pleasant, and I did not enjoy it. Um, But then I ran the last time, didn't quite have the fire in the belly at the beginning, um, but then I learned so much and i learned about you know i was a budget chairman we balanced the federal budget you know i fixed in ohio no nope, no nope, nobody cared okay well, i'll tell you what people care about in my opinion they care about whether you care about them in other words what i learned is slow down when you say to somebody how are you doing listen to what they tell you and i went all across the country as the last person standing uh, in the race and I was in uh, Clemson, uh, and a boy stood up, a student, young man, and he said, you know, I lost my, I can't remember all the details, Doug, I'll have to dig that back out again, but you know, my father, lost my father, my mother sick, my uncle, this, and, and, and he said to me, he said, would you come off the stage and give me one of those Kasich hugs? And I did. There isn't any way you don't cry, good, have a good cry when something like that happens. But you see, the issues are nothing more than a, an than a ability of, for a person to have a camera to see into your soul. And what people want to know is, do you get me? Can you celebrate with me? Can you mourn with me? Can you lift me? That's what people want. And I learned that the second time around. And I, I love John. He's a, he's a friend of mine. I want him to do really, really well. But not too well. Yeah, but not
1: too well, right.
2: (laughs) No, I want him to do as high as as the rocket ship can take him. And I'll be happy. But the key to it today in politics are not all these things. And this is what he has going for him. It's about the ability to touch somebody. Am I right, David? That's what it is really all about, mm. and so as for me and what I'm going to do, I've been on every talk show. Do you really have to ask me that boring question? For, have anybody seen me on a talk show talk about whether I'm going to run for president? <laughs> Let me see. Oh, there's two people in here. Yeah, right. <laughs> I, I really don't know. We, you know, think. Of, I think of it this way. It's sort of something that my buddy Arnold Schwarzenegger told me. You have a fire extinguisher, okay, in your hand, and if a fire breaks out, you're ready to put it out, and so. I don't know what I'm gonna do. All options are on, on the table for me. Um, but I had an absolutely wonderful time running for president the last time. It is hard work, it's extremely difficult, but boy, I'll tell you what, it can be so personally rewarding if you allow yourself to be caught up, caught up in the fervor and the and the and the tensions and the passions of the people of this country. It's fantastic so we'll see
1: you voted for John McCain in 2016 and his um, longtime aide said you have to kill the party of Trump to save the party of Lincoln do you agree with that
2: good quote I guess Um, I don't I don't I'm doing in Ohio what I think we need to do so it's not like I have to I have to talk about all this stuff we've done it so people can take a look and see So, um, look, I I think what we're all hungry for is is just to stop kind of the fighting. And if you want to stop the fighting, it has to start with us. You know, we got to become more humble. We got to think about our eternal destiny. We got to think about the meaning of life and our purpose here because we're all made special. No one will ever be like us again. And we need to connect we need to be resilient, we need to be compassionate. Those are the things we need to do. These are bigger issues today in our country. See, you celebrate here Philadelphia. See, Philadelphia is about the spirit of our people. And some of us have felt like, well, if I can't hit a home run, I might as well not bat. Nonsense, as we rekindle ourselves, they go back to Comcast and say, You know, we're doing a lot of good things. How much more can we do where we can do good at the same time by doing well at the bottom line? Brandywine, I gave the guy my email. You know what that's about? I'm investing. I'm investing in poor neighborhoods. Why? Because when the neighborhoods get better, they make more money, but guess what? They're also doing good at the same time. It's being able to do good and do well at the same time. That's what we need to focus on in this country and I think I have beat this enough. I hope you hear it.
1: I just have a couple of personal questions. Governor Hickenlooper, when you were about 18, I read your memoir. Uh Uh-oh. Uh-oh. You (coughs) took your mother to see Deep Throat (laughs) sitting next to her with a friend of yours. Why? (laughs)
2: <laughs> yeah I'd like to know that answer Hickenlooper
0: what
1: why so you
0: read that whole book and that's, like and one that's I'm the thing about. I
1: picked um, out exactly
0: the uh, and it's worth pointing out that my uh, my mother was widowed at the end of World War II and had two, two kids uh, and was very proper old Philadelphia family um, and she met my father and he was from Cincinnati Ohio and courted her relentlessly, and her, she, her, she was five foot tall, not quite, actually four 11 and a half, never quite made it to five foot, she said. And my father kept trying to talk about marriage, and she kept putting him off saying, you know, you don't want a widow with two kids. This went on for about a year and a half, and finally, in the Bellevue Stratford, in this hotel, he had gone out to, in those days, you'd go to a jewelry store. Notice
1: he's not talking about deep throat, but that, that's well, okay. Well, I'm setting
0: the stage for a relationship a man can have with his okay. mother. Okay,
1: fair enough.
0: So, so he got all these, uh, you'd give him 20 bucks, they'd give you a little cheap diamond ring, and you'd go, uh, you know, propose. And if she said yes, you'd go back to the jewelry store and get a nice ring. So he went to 10 different uh, jewelry stores and finally said, all right, Shrimpy, make up your mind. He throws the, the rings out on hours. the table, right upstairs in the Bellevue Stratford. So this is the perfect context by which I can answer <laughs> the, 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 the question. So, um, so my mom remarried, I was the second, she had two more kids, so there were four kids, I was the baby, and then my father got sick and he died in 1960 when I was uh, just turned eight. So my mom had to kind of raise all of us by ourselves and, Especially with a boy, you, you end up kind of raising yourself because my mother was, had, she had her hands full. And I didn't do such a good job of it. And we had a very tempestuous, my, my teenage years weren't great. Uh, and I went off to college, and I didn't really appreciate how alone she was in the house by herself for the first time. And When I came home at Thanksgiving, I'd call my, my, my old buddy, uh, Harry Barrett up and said, you know, let's go see one of these new things. They've got this thing called an X movie. It's kind of a little racy, but not too racy. And he said, oh, great. All right, we'll do that. And so I, I'm driving. I get home on Tuesday night, and my mother has cooked this amazing dinner. My mother hated to cook. And so there's this beautiful dinner out there, and I go, oh, this is going to be great, but I, can we eat in an hour? Because I kind of promised Harry we'd go see a, a, this new kind of movie. There's a movie called, I can't remember what it's called, Throat Something. And, and my mom, she, she just looks so, and she would have never cared before, but I could feel how 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 I was hurting her feelings. So I said, well, would you like to go to the movie? (laughs) And I I knew that there was no way a proper, I mean, she's 12th generation Philadelphia. There's no way that she's gonna wanna do that. And she looks at me and she smiles and goes, oh, I'd love to. (laughs) And so we go in there, we go to this movie down in Bala Kinwood, at the Bala, uh, kind of an art show. And and there's there's Harry, Harry's six, two and a half. I was six, one, almost six, two. And my mom's five foot. And she's like, you know, 30 years older than we are. It was awkward, to say the least. And anyway, we get in, we get in, this the first, the first scene is not good, right, from the beginning. And I turn to my mother, I whisper, I say, um, maybe we should leave. Can we go? And she goes, no, no, I'll be fine.
1: But even better than that.
0: That's
2: good.
1: According to what you write on the drive home, she said, Well, it certainly was sharply in focus.
0: (laughs) It's true. Yeah, good line. She was a Yankee. And for
1: you, uh, Governor Kasich, you sat with President Lincoln? Excuse me, President Nixon. (laughs)
0: Excuse me. He's had so much experience, that's almost (laughs) believable.
1: It's the party of Lincoln, but anyway. (laughs) Uh, but you wrote to him, you were 18 years old, I would immediately pass up a Rose Bowl trip to see you. My parents would permit me to fly down and see you anytime and I know my grades wouldn't suffer. And you got a 20-minute conversation with President Nixon. What would you talk about?
2: None of your business. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the, story, um, the story, I'll tell it quickly. Uh, in a couple months when I'm out speaking again, uh, I'm not telling it for free, so I'll, this is the last time. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, <laughs> I was a freshman at Ohio State, so I went there. I went there on a whim. I'm in a big dormitory. I have uh, we're 18 of us in one room. I got upset. wanted to see the president of the university because I figured my uncle told me, you start at the top. I go in to see him. Wouldn't let me in I get in I go in to see him. He's got a nice office and all this a beautiful carpeting beautiful desk and all that And he says well, what are you here for? I said well, I'm here to complain about a couple of things And he said okay, what are they and I told him and then I said, uh, you know You have a really nice office here and you know nice furniture You got that lady out there wouldn't <laughs> let me in and this looks like a really cool job I'm undecided. I'm here, you know a couple of weeks. I'm undecided here at Ohio State and you know uh, what do you do uh cuz you know maybe this is the job for me um uh, and he said well i i um have uh, academic responsibilities and fundraising responsibilities tomorrow i'm going to go down and see president nixon and i said well there's a number of things that i would like to talk to him about also could i go with you <laughs> and he said no and i said well if i write a letter would you give it to him and he said Okay. So I went back to my dorm and I wrote a letter and that's, that was part of the letter. I don't remember exactly what it was, but, you know, I'd like to talk to you about some things and, you know, P.S. John, John Kasich, P.S. If you'd like to discuss this further, let me know, you know, I'll come see you. I'm a student. I got time. So <laughs> one day I get out of my mailbox and there's a letter from the White House office of the president. I open it up, go upstairs, call home to my mother, answers the phone. I said, mom, now my mother, you know, my dad was a mailman. My mother was kind of in and out of the workforce. We are blue collar, uh, you know, living in a suburb of Pittsburgh. And I said, Mom, I'm going to need an airline ticket. The President of the United States would like to have a meeting with me in the Oval Office. And my mother is shouting, Honey, pick up the phone. There's something really wrong with Johnny. And uh, So I flew down and uh, was sitting right outside the Oval Office and they said, "You." guy comes up to me He says, you get five minutes alone with the President of the United States. And I'm the first quarter 18-year-old freshman. And he says, you get five minutes alone. So I'm thinking, new jacket, new, new pants, new shirt, new tie. I didn't come here for five lousy minutes. i so will have to send security in to yank me out of there. So they open the door. I walk in. I see the President. We sit down at his desk. And the good news is I spent almost 20 minutes with him as an 18-year-old. But the bad news is, I was in Congress for 18 years, and if you spend all, add up all the time I spent in the Oval Office, I peaked out at the age of 18. <laughs> <So>. uh. <clears throat> well,
1: it's been a pleasure. Good luck to you both. Thank you very much.
3: Thank you all. So that was it, the interview with John Hickenlooper and John Kasich late last year at the Bellevue Hotel at the Committee of Seventies annual luncheon. So, David, uh, how do you think it went?
4: Oh, I was thrilled. Uh, I thought uh, both of them uh, delivered as advertised. Marty uh, was all Marty could do, uh, even though she (laughs) is a great interviewer to sort of ride herd on the conversation, Uh, very active, provocative. And, and, you know, a couple things that that came through to me, uh, these felt like real people, both of them, very different. We can talk about that further. But... You know, in my introduction, I suggested that what we were trying to find in, in the uh, realm of the sort of DNA of the Committee of seventy, uh, two uh, people who exhibited uh, a sense of uh, character, uh, competence, you know, that they they appreciated the art of governing. And speaking of that, that they also were, were fluent in the language of compromise. Uh, and I think the the interview demonstrated that that you know and again, but these are these felt like real people maybe we're catching them uh, at the uh, at the way into uh, the bubble of a presidential campaign and if both of them or either of them jump in maybe that'll go away, but it felt like for the time being we were talking to real people talking about the real challenges of governing
3: well you mentioned looking for uh, elected officials with character. Competence And an affinity for compromise. I will say about uh, John Kasich, who is the governor of my uh, native state, Ohio, that uh, he's also a character. Yes. Uh, it was my, both of them are, yeah, actually. Yeah, yeah but in different ways. Hick and Looper in a much sort of quieter, aw shucks way. But Kasich is. Uh, is a force of nature. I, I happened to be the person who was assigned to meet him downstairs. Yeah. Uh, and he was about 20 or 25 minutes late because on the way in from the, the airport, he decided he was hungry, even <laughs> though he was coming to a lunch. And they had to stop, and I believe it was a Wawa somewhere in Center City, Philadelphia, so he could get something. He came sweeping through the door just full of energy, um, going up – in the hotel elevator with him to get you know just going up a floor to the ballroom I heard all about how excited he was that for the first time in many many years he was buying his own car and he told me all about the car and the features <laughs> and you know, like he basically never stopped like talking cracking yeah. jokes, shaking hands and offering opinions for the next two hours.
4: Yeah, especially offering opinions he is one of those people that I would uh, characterize in the uh, off, sometimes wrong but never uncertain category. As you'll recall we had a spirited conversation at lunch at our a private table about all that was wrong with uh, public education. And I think he turned to you to try well, to I, I believe, fix everything. I
3: believe at one time he offered me the job of secretary of education <laughs> of right. the great state of Ohio. <laughs> yeah. And as a native Buckeye, I was honored. But yeah. like uh, at that point, I guess his term only had three weeks to run. So yeah. it was not that great an honor. He
4: also offered, felt quite um, free to offer me advice about the luncheon itself, that we should prolong <laughs> We should prolong the VIP session for which he was late. Yeah, uh, and that uh, how could we possibly not take questions oh, from the loved audience? the Q and A idea, right? Um, yeah, so. and
3: so during this whole thing. Um uh, Governor Kasich is gesticulating and talking and cracking jokes, and John Hickenlooper just has this little smile on his face, like this is my little brother who I really enjoy. <laughs> but like, and every once in a while, he'd look across the table and roll his eyes at me, you yeah. know, as Kasich was going.
4: My, my wife Rebecca said about Hickenlooper that there was sort of a uh, something in the realm of J- Jimmy Stewart about him, um, w- which uh, I have to say, Jimmy Stewart being from Indiana, PA, maybe there's something in the. Yeah. Uh, uh in the in the water um but yeah he's sort of quiet almost kind of bemused uh told a, as you mentioned at the uh at the outset a great story that involved taking his mother to see the movie deep throat right the thing about that <laughs> david is most
3: politicians particularly any who might have the slightest scintilla of thought that they're running for president would have just ducked that question yeah and he Paused for a moment and
4: then was like, I'll tell the
3: story. And he told the story (laughs) in a very engaging way. Yeah.
4: By the way, uh, for those interested in a little more Hickenlooper, Michael Smirconish did a terrific interview with just him for about a half an hour before our. Presentation, which I think is on Sirius, and probably available uh, online. So,
3: so there's a little bit of thought. I mean, it's not right now. Right now, the presidential talk has been dominated by Elizabeth Warren jumping in, and who else is jumping in? And you know, that sort of sense that um, can the Democratic Party, the the discussion of whether the Democratic Party can risk, you know, nominating a woman again, Um, but. There was a little talk uh, last year as Hickenlooper and Kasich did a few events together that they might be contemplating the notion of being some kind of centrist fusion ticket. Yeah. Uh, What did you come away from the day thinking about that idea?
4: Well, I think the logistics are problematic. Uh, I don't know exactly state by state how you would file uh, do, you, do Does one file uh, in the uh, Republican primary and one in the Democratic primary? I don't – I think both of them understand the challenges of running as an independent. And then is it just whoever gets furthest is the uh, presidential uh, nominee and second place among the two of them is uh, – between the two of them is the vice president? I, I don't know. It, it feels uh, a kind of a – you, you know, in baseball, they talk about the hot stove league, <laughs> mm-hmm. which is, is sort of when they're actually not playing baseball, you just talk about baseball. This right. this is sort of fodder for the hot stove league of politics, I think. But it it feels uh, like it'd be uh, a three-bank shot to pull off.
3: Right. Though, And, you know, the other question is, will anyone challenge the incumbent president of the Republican primary? And there's some thought that Kasich, who hung in there the longest last time around, might be the guy – And um, we didn't get any inside information, but um, just talking to him um, privately and what he said on the stage, it's clear that he's not intimidated or afraid of President Trump. It's just a question of whether um, he wants to put the energy and put all his friends in terms of the people he asked to ask for money, um, whether he has the energy or just – the desire to do that quixotic thing.
4: Again. Yeah, well, and uh, one other thing, uh, kind of an undercurrent uh, or, uh, or around the, our reasoning behind this program is, uh, I think uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to assert that the next president uh, will can only be elected president if you win Pennsylvania. Uh, Ohio uh, clearly has laid stake to that claim in the past. Yeah. Um, Looking uh, pretty
3: red now. Pretty dark pink, at least the state of Ohio. But yeah, yeah.
4: and uh, but you know, Donald Trump won Pennsylvania by forty-four thousand votes, um, having born, been born and raised and worked here for seemingly forever. <laughs> you know, I think Pennsylvania's got uh, kind of a, a, an independent streak to it—a a long tradition of. Uh, moderate to liberal Republicans and moderate to conservative Democrats. Uh, So here was this sort of interesting combination of these two that that brought some of those qualities to the debate, Um, trying to maybe... Uh, offer a preview of coming attractions for what the, the presidential race will be in Pennsylvania. Yeah. One last
3: thing I just want to underline about Hickenlooper that really impressed me, and I knew a little bit of this, but I didn't know all the details, when he talked about uh, implementing the legalization of marijuana in Colorado. And he said, I was opposed to this, but once the referendum passed, it was my job to make sure we did it in the most effective way possible that limited the various aspects of of damage or risk that I was worried about going in. And I just thought, what a novel concept in a chief executive to faithfully execute the laws, whether you agreed with it or not. And I mean, I think most observers would agree Colorado has done... pretty good job of implementing the legalization. And I was also impressed that he said, based on data, based on the experience and the evidence of a couple of years after legalization, that some of the things he was most worried about didn't happen. So two things, faithfully executing the laws and changing your mind based on evidence. (laughs) What a concept. Two concepts that I wouldn't mind seeing, um, you know, more vividly demonstrated in our next crop of presidential. Yeah, candidates. well, I'm
4: with you there, and we've gotten so used to kind of hauling out the flip flops and waving them uh, in the spotlight on these mm-hmm. kinds of things, which is that's that's not responsible governing. And again, that's uh, I'm glad you pointed that out because that was one of the reasons why. And by the way, having governors too, mm-hmm. uh, people who actually you know run significant states, and and are faced with uh, these sort of 5149 questions that as you say, sometimes play out differently than, than you thought.
3: David, for folks who aren't familiar with um, the occasion that this conversation occurred with, tell us just a little bit about um, the Committee of Seventy's annual lunch, why it's important to the organization, and what you're thinking about for 2019.
4: Sure. Uh, well, it is a major fundraiser for the Committee of Seventy. That's what allows us to keep the lights on. And coming to you via this podcast uh, we raised about uh, five hundred and forty thousand uh, dollars this this time around for which we're grateful to our board and supporters and people in the community that that uh, that chipped in to make this possible. But uh, I think since I've been there, uh, you know we've tried to use this to gain some insights uh, into national politics. Uh, that maybe is is rooted in the kinds of values that we've already cared about. So again, character, competence, compromise, uh, to to get behind the sort of shouting matches that constitute political dialogue these days. Hear from some thoughtful people. You mentioned John Meacham. We had John Dickerson a couple of years ago. These are all stars in the in the journalism community. As to what comes next, good question. <laughs> Trying to predict where the nation is mm-hmm. in October and November of 19, good luck with that. Something tells me, me we might want to bring in some folks who can speak to the rule of law and uh, constitutional questions as it relates to uh, our national political environment. But um, we'll know more in a few months.
3: Right. The, the trick here, of course, is to, to book – speakers of this stature and to like make everything work you have to start in the spring thinking about it but this time you're really trying to shoot at a a, a speeding bullet here Yeah.
4: at some point we're going to have to play some hunches uh and we're uh, going to give it a couple months to see uh how we can inform those hunches
3: okay so stay tuned <laughs> this special presidential election edition of 20 by 70. Well, maybe presidential election, but our two guests, John Kasich, former governor of Ohio, and John Hickenlooper, former governor of Colorado, are certainly in the conversation about possible candidates for the White House in 2020. This podcast is brought to you by the Good Government Group of Philadelphia, the Committee of 70. Of course, we couldn't do it without the help of a lot of good people. Um... First off, we want to thank the two uh, politicians who you heard from um, at the annual luncheon and all their staffs and the people who helped make it happen. We also want to give a special thanks to my good friend Marty Moskowin, the host of Radio Times, who so graciously agreed to do the somewhat challenging job of keeping these two gentlemen on track, and as for this podcast, as always, our intrepid producer is Joel Patterson. We thank him, and we thank uh, the good folks at the Wexler Studio at Kelly Writer's House on the University of Pennsylvania campus, and particularly our engineer, who always so ably handles the controls, Zach Cardner. And thanks also to one of Philadelphia's favorite sons, Quest Love, who provides the beat for Twenty by Seventy. So, 20 by 70 is brought to you by the Committee of 70. You can find it on SoundCloud, iTunes, or wherever fine podcasts are purveyed. And the most important way we can grow our audience is through word of mouth. So, please like us. Please leave a comment. Please share us on Twitter or Facebook. And follow us on those social media platforms. Again, I'm Chris Satulo with David Thornburg here in the studio. Thank you for listening. And until next time, expect more. Philadelphia.
0: August 1920, Mother Jones put out the call.
3: To the hills of West Virginia, came 13,000 strong. Riding loose fields special,
0: Boone County where they meet. Take on Sheriff.